So one of my high school teachers was actually uh, also the father of one of my best friends, which is how I happen to have heard so much about this story. Uh, but this teacher was, uh, he taught in the vocational area of our high school, so he taught things like uh, small engines and agriculture and that kind of stuff. And so he was doing a, a lab class on, on a Saturday. And so he goes home Friday and, uh, and comes back Saturday morning to get ready for this class. And he notices when he pulls into the high school that the grass out, out in front of the high school was all ripped up. Somebody had been doing donuts in the lawn. Now this was not an infrequent occurrence and he thought that he knew who these boys were who, who was doing these donuts and um, it just so happened that these boys were supposed to be in his class that Saturday. So sure enough they drive up to, to come to class and their car is freshly washed, right? Perfectly spotless. And uh, so they, they sit down in the class and he brings up, you know, these donuts keep showing up there and, and there's some snickering and, and stuff like that. And then uh, he says, this has gone on too long. There's multiple occurrences of that. And so he starts to turn up the heat in the class a little bit. And he says, uh, this is no longer a school matter. We're going to have to, if we catch the perpetrators, we're going to have to call the cops because this is vandalism. And uh, there's some squirming going on in the class now, but he knows, he, he's pretty sure who these two boys are, uh, but he doesn't have proof. So what he does is he, he opens it up to the class. He says, what do you guys think we should do to find these, these perpetrators, these people that are doing this? And uh, you know, it gets real quiet. And some of the students have great ideas. And one of these ideas was to put an ad out in the school paper uh, for a, a reward, like s some candy at the, the local school store or something like that. And, you know, high school kids, for the most part, and I'm sure you're much more loyal to your friends, actually, but you know, there's, there's a degree of loyalty, right? And if you, you wave enough Snickers bars or, or, or money, that someone's going to snitch on these two guys. So they start to get nervous. And then they start to have great ideas of how to catch the perpetrators. They say, well, I think what we should do, go do is inspect the cars out in the parking lot because... You know, the grass would be up on the car because they had washed their car, right? So they think they'll be exonerated. Best case, or worst case scenario, you know, they just, they can't catch anybody because their car's clean. Best case scenario, they can put the blame on somebody else. So they all go outside. The teacher's playing along. He says, oh, that's a good idea. Let's go outside. They start looking at the cars. And these two boys, the ones that he thinks did this crime, they're, they're pointing out all these other cars. Look how dirty this one is. It could be the car. Well, they don't find it, they don't find it, and the teacher plays along. He says, boy, you guys did a really good job cleaning your car. He starts asking them tips about how they clean their car. I think the guy's genius. He says, how do you clean the underbody? That's how I always have a problem with these cars, and their faces go blank. Well, let me just see how good you cleaned your car. He looks under, of course, up under the suspension in the undercarriage, fresh turf. These interrogators, these boys who are interrogating everybody else became the interrogated. They were so confident, but they became the convicted. In this evening's text, it appears that Jesus is on trial. But I want us to be attentive readers and ask the question, whose trial is this? Whose trial is this? Would you stand with me as we read the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 12 through 27. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. 
Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of all the people. So Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So this other disciple, who had been known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. Now the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. And when he said this, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong, but if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You're not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. You may be seated. So we're picking up where we left off last week. Last week we looked at John 18, 1 through 11. And in that story, Jesus is betrayed by Judas in the garden. Judas leads this group of uh, Roman soldiers, temple guards, Pharisees, and priests from the temple. And they all come and they converge in a mob and they arrest Jesus. And what happens is Jesus gives himself over to these authorities. Now, we pick up the story and what happens is this mob brings Jesus to Annas. And this is kind of a confusing move and can be uh, a bit weird, so let's break it down. First of all, this is not really an official trial. This is tri supposedly an official inquiry. And what they're trying to do is build a case against Jesus. And it has to be a capital case, something like heresy or something like... Uh, 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 where, where Jesus is trying to become king of, of Rome. And so what they're trying to do is build this case so then they can take Jesus and try him before Pontius Pilate, who could actually have him executed. Now, it's funny because John reminds us here that it was Caiaphas, this high priest, who had earlier on, he had the idea that it was a good idea to kill Jesus in order to save everybody else. See, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and all these people were coming to, to hang out with Jesus to see how wonderful he was. And Caiaphas had this plan. He says, this is going to cause all kind of corruption, and Rome is going to take our power away, the chief priests. So let's kill Jesus, and then we can, we can preserve our power. Now, Jewish law stated that the high priest would maintain his role for life. 
But when the Romans seized power in Israel, they didn't respect the Jewish law. So instead, Rome took the liberty of appointing high priests. That's kind of weird, right? Here's Rome. They have this polytheistic religion, and they're a completely different nation. And here they're telling the Jews who can be the Jewish high priest. So Annas was high priest from 6 A.D. until 15 A.D. He must have had some kind of, you know, differing political views because Valerius Gratus, Valerius Gratus was this governor, the governor before Pontius Pilate. This Valerius Gratus fired Annas, who was the high priest. And he put, over the years, different sons of Annas in the role of the high priest. And he was probably doing this to play them against each other. And if they disagreed with him, he'd kick them out and put one of their brothers in. And so you've got this whole family. And what's happening is the Roman government is trying to pull the strings of the Jewish nation by leading their high priest. Well, when Pontius Pilate comes into power, he, uh, he's the next governor after Valerius Gratus. He appoints Caiaphas as the high priest. Caiaphas is the son-in-law of Annas. Now, that's all fine and good. See, the Romans think that they can just dictate what the Jews are going to do in their own temple. But most of the rank-and-file Jewish people are still going to view Annas as the rightful high priest. He was, the first, he was the high priest, and he was supposed to be high priest for life. And so it, it, it kind of makes sense then that after they arrest Jesus, they bring him to Annas' house, not to the temple where Caiaphas would be. Who's on trial in this scripture? It appears that Jesus is on trial. And that's where we leave the story at Annas' house. Now, John does this amazing job of splicing together two parallel storylines. He's going to be telling us the story of Jesus on the one hand and Peter on the other hand. Any Lost fans out there? See, okay, a couple. Now, if you're not a fan of Lost, this television show, it's about people who are lost in more ways than one. And sometimes they're on a mystical island and sometimes they're in L.A. or other parts of the world. But this season, season six of the Lost show deals with two parallel storylines. You've got the same characters and what happens is uh, these characters are on an island and it's almost as if it's saying if they make these decisions this is what their life would be like. And if they make those decisions this other parallel storyline is what their life would be like. And during a one hour episode it edits back and forth to the island people and to the stateside people. Now, when it does that edit back and forth, there's this sound effect. It's like, I'm not going to do it right, but it's kind of like, zoom. Can you make that noise? Zoom. Do it really loud. One, two, three. Zoom. Okay, you're going to be my sound effects because now what we're doing is we're switching storylines. And now we're going to start looking at Peter for a second. This is happening at the same time. In fact, Travis, you want to put up that graphic real quick? I'm going to show you, this is uh, uh, from the 14th century. It's actually on, uh, on wood. This is from a museum in Siena. And you see the top portion of the painting has Jesus on trial. And right beneath, at the same time what's happening is Peter is around this fire uh, with the people who arrested Jesus. So they're happening at the exact same time. We might come back to that, but that's good for now, Travis. <coughs> Thank you.
So, we're cutting away from Jesus for a moment. We're going to be seeing what's going on outside. And what we learn is that Peter and this other disciple, who we don't know his name, they followed Jesus from this arrest in the garden. And now they've come to Annas' house. And somehow this other disciple kind of has connections with the high priest, either directly or through uh, some of his slaves or whatnot. But this other disciple gets into Annas' place. And there's speculation about who this man would be. Uh, some scholarship points that it might be John the author himself. <coughs> Excuse me. I kind of lean in that direction. It's not critical to understanding the story, but the reason I kind of think it might be John is that John's gospel is much more detailed in these scenes than the other three gospels are. And it's almost as if John or somebody on the inside who informed John were there. You know, they know what's going on inside. So regardless, it doesn't really bear too much on the story. This other disciple is inside. He uses his connections to get Peter inside as well. So Peter goes inside, and a slave girl stops him. It's her job to be checking IDs and, and basically facial ID. I don't know you. And she asks him straight up, You're not one of this man's disciples, are you? Peter replies, I am not. So while Jesus is on trial inside, Peter is on trial outside. Who's on trial? Whose trial is this? Well, it's Jesus's. And now we see that it's also Peter's. His loyalty, his faith are on trial. He's questioned and he denies the charges that he's a disciple of Christ. Now watch what happens. Peter denies he's Jesus' disciple. And then what does he do? He goes and warms himself next to the fire. With whom? The very same slaves and officers who just arrested his Lord. He warms himself by the fire, cozies right up to the same group of men. Less than an hour earlier, he had slashed at with a sword. Remember last, last week how he slashed into the mob and cut the right ear off of the slave Malchus? These are Malchus's peeps. These are his people. These are the people that Peter just rushed at with the sword. And now he's getting cozy with them. You ever feel that way? Like one minute you are slashing at the enemy. You are resisting temptation. You are standing up for injustice. Living for Jesus. And then all of a sudden, you give in a little bit. And you find yourself cozying up to the very things that you really can't stand. Put yourself there at the fire with Peter. It's a charcoal fire. Now, I just got a great gift a few years ago. Weber, 36,000 BTU. You know what I'm talking about, men? It's uh, propane. And that's, that's pretty convenient. But I miss the smell of the Kingsford briquettes. You know what I'm saying? When you cook with it, you, you have that smell in your nose. You know that smell of briquettes? Put yourself there at the fire. Can you smell the charcoal fire? How does Peter feel? while he's warming himself next to these people. Defeated. Confused. Paralyzed. What have I just done? I've just denied Jesus. Maybe he feels sick to his stomach.
We'll come back to that. Ready for the zoom? Three, two, one. Zoom! Okay. Bam! We're back in upstairs now with Jesus. Jesus is on trial. And the priests, they're interrogating him about two things. They want to know about Jesus' disciples, and they want to know about the stuff Jesus was teaching. Now notice how Jesus protected his disciples in the garden when the, when the mobs came. He says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. I am. You let my friends go. And he gave himself over. Now, they're asking us about, about his disciples again. They want Jesus to turn them in too. He doesn't even entertain that line of questioning. Jesus never gives up his friends. This is what he says. He starts to talk about his teaching. He starts to talk about his teaching. Here's why. If the religious leaders could prove that Jesus was teaching heretical things, they would have him nailed in a case. They could bring that case to Pilate. Now, the funny thing is, and, and bad for the interrogators, is that it was believed that a false prophet taught two different things. So uh, false prophets, by their law, would have to teach one thing in public and then have a cultish, private teaching that was completely different. And they were trying to catch Jesus into teaching something wrong. Now, the problem for them is that Jesus never taught in secret. In fact, Jesus replies, I was out in the open. I was in the synagogues, in the temples. And in fact, when Jesus did teach just the twelve disciples, as we have in Scripture, it's the same stuff he was saying out in public. Jesus didn't have this secret life where he, he would teach one group of people one thing and in private teach them another thing. And I think that, just as a quick side note, this is a very, very important message for us as the church. I think at different times in history, at least in mine, we the church have tried to attract people. And what we try and do is tell part of the gospel. Maybe that God is just only loving. Or conversely, that God is really a mean guy and you need to just come to Him. But we need to be careful that we preach a whole gospel, right? Like, following Jesus is hard. It's not easy. But it has eternal benefits. You see how those two things are married together? Trusting Jesus means changing our lives. It means repentance, turning around. But at the same time, the life that we're turning into is abundant life. It's the only life I found worth living. So I'm just saying, we need to be people of the whole gospel. Now, back to Jesus on trial. They question him about his teaching, and, they, and he says, Hey, I've been pre preaching in public for three years. Remember the question, who's on trial? Listen to this, watch what happens. Jesus then asks them questions. He says, Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I said. They know what I spoke to them. Just like the teacher looked under the boy's car and found the turf, he turned those interrogators into the interrogated. Jesus is now questioning the whole legitimacy of this inquiry. You see, to be legal, the proper procedure was to question the witnesses of the defendant first before you could even bring prosecution against him. 
it was not okay even to directly question the defendant. He, you're supposed to question his witnesses. Now, what's wrong with this scene? Where are Jesus' witnesses? Well, so far in the Gospel of John, we've seen that one of his best witnesses is a Samaritan woman he talked to at a well. Not a Jewish man at all. A most unlikely candidate to be exemplified as a great witness. Who's another great witness in John's Gospel? A man born blind from birth who got kicked out of the synagogue by these dudes who are interrogating Jesus. And the Gospel tells us that he was a great witness. Who should have been Jesus' witness right by his side in this scene? Peter, the man warming himself at the charcoal fire with the men who arrested Jesus. And that's not even the worst of it. The other dudes, they're not even in the story. They've scattered. Well, these religious leaders don't like being called out. They don't like being put on trial. And so one of the officers hauls off and hits Jesus. And Jesus' reply, this is awesome. Listen, if I've spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. If rightly, why do you strike me? Do you sense the boldness and strength? I don't know, maybe you've read that passage over and over again or hearing it for the first time. I'm not sure where you're at. But that is some powerful stuff. I mean, Travis, one more time with that photo. Obviously, this is a stylized depiction. But look at Jesus surrounded by these men with spears. And the man to his left has got his fist raised. He's ready to strike Jesus. And this doesn't do it justice, but a close-up view shows that actually Jesus in this painting already has the holes in his feet from the nails. Now, this is obviously a scene before the crucifixion, but the idea being... Jesus is already, he's giving himself up to do what he came to do. To be crucified. To save the world. But it doesn't mean that he shrinks back in fear. Notice how strong Jesus is. He's not some pushover who's afraid to speak the truth. In the face of justice and injustice and corruption, Jesus makes a stand even when it's not really going to save him. It's just the right thing to do. And I think that we have something to learn here as individuals and as a church. Because oftentimes I think the silent message in churches, at least ones that I've been a part of, is that we're all supposed to be nice, right? And oftentimes that niceness equates weakness. Oftentimes we use niceness as a mask to hide our fears behind. I'm really afraid to say this truthful thing. But if I'm nice... Everyone will like me. In this instance, and throughout much of the gospel, Jesus is not nice, but he's loving. He's not nice, but he's loving. Love speaks the truth for the good of others. Love speaks the truth for the good of others. Love speaks the truth for those who have no voice. Love is hard. Love takes strength. So when faced with corruption and injustice in our world, what's the difference? You might want to write this one down. 
What's the difference between being nice and being loving? So, Annas and his thugs see they're getting nowhere. And so they send Jesus off to Caiaphas. After all, Pontius Pilate said that Caiaphas is the high priest. So, if they want to bring a a case against Jesus to Pilate, based on religious stuff, they're going to have to do it through Caiaphas anyway. They send Jesus out to Caiaphas. On the count of three now, get your zooms ready. One, two, three, Okay, back to Peter. Warming himself by what kind of fire? Charcoal fire with his enemies. And those around the fire question him a second time now. You're not one of his disciples, are you? I'm not. And we know in the same scene, he gets it a third time, denies it. Jesus, the strong, bold protector of his disciples, is inside without a witness. Peter, one of Jesus' witnesses, is outside denying, denying affiliation with Jesus. Leslie Newbigin writes, While Jesus has protected his disciples from danger with the thrice-repeated words, I am, the disciple is betraying his master with the thrice-repeated words, I am not. Notice that Peter does not deny he knows Jesus. He does not deny that Jesus is Lord or Messiah. He denies he's Jesus' disciple. You catch that differentiation? Jesus doesn't deny he doesn't know Jesus. doesn't deny he's Lord or Messiah. He denies that he, Peter, is a disciple of this guy Jesus. That really rattled me this week. I stand up and preach about Jesus being Lord and Messiah and even God Himself. But does my life look like a disciple's life? Is yours? Who's on trial here? Jesus? Peter? The religious leaders? And I think John wants to put us on the stand too. Where are we in the story? If asked, you're not one of his disciples too, are you? Am I his disciple also? Our words mean so little if our actions put us around the fire, cozying up to the enemy of sin, cozying up to the enemy of indifference in the face of injustice, Cozying up to hardened hearts toward those in need, impatience with those we love, a judgmental spirit. Hey, and those are just some of my issues. How about you? You're not one of his disciples too, are you? See, I don't think Peter's issue is a lack of courage. He was willing to take on a Roman cohort with 11 guys. He's slashing into these soldiers. I mean, he might be a little stupid, but he's not a coward. I think Peter's issue is one of obedience to the real Jesus. See, once he figured out that Jesus wasn't going to be a military leader and take out Rome, 
He's, his paradigm shifted. Who's this guy I thought I was following? What's he really about? The issue is discipleship. <clears throat> and see, I think a lot of times we associate knowing lots of stuff about the Bible or about Christianity with spiritual maturity. But this is my favorite definition of discipleship. It's from Dallas Willard. A disciple is a person who's decided that the most important thing in their life is to do what Jesus said to do. A disciple is not a person who has things under control or knows lots of things. Disciples are simply people who are constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their commitment to follow Jesus. Disciples are simply people who are constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their decision to follow Jesus. You don't need theology degrees. You don't need to have been a Christian for a long time. What we need to be are men and women who are willing to constantly revise how we live to put it in line with Christ as He reveals more and more of His self to us. As I look out onto your faces and know so many of your stories as we've talked, I know that I'm looking at disciples. I know so many of the ways that you've revised your affairs even in this last year to follow through on your decision to follow Jesus. But this is a lifelong thing, isn't it? Constantly revising our affairs. So, are you not a disciple of His also? Maybe the answer to that, if we were around a fire with those men, would be sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes I get it. Sometimes I don't. Well, I've got very, very good news for you. And it starts with an Anthrakian. It starts with an Anthrakian, Greek for charcoal fire. Anthrakian is only used twice in all of the New Testament. Here in John 18, and again in John 21. After Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, He comes to His disciples. He fishes with them. Oh, they get a big catch of fish. And they cook these fish over an Anthrakian, a charcoal fire. Only this time, Peter is sitting around this charcoal fire, not with the enemy, but with his Lord. And it's around this fire, that familiar smell, where Jesus forgives him. Isn't that good news? Yes, we fail Jesus. We've often denied, through word or deed, being his disciples. We've kept quiet when we should have been witnesses to his life and teachings among those who don't know him. But we're not condemned to be that way forever. There's forgiveness. There's forgiveness. So, sit around your own Anthrakian right now, your own charcoal fire. 
And I'm going to give us space to process this. I'm going to give us some moments of silence. And the first thing I want us to do is to have some space for confession. Just silently, where you're at. Where have you said, I am not His disciple, through word or deed? And I'll lead us to the next thing. So take a moment of silence.